I'm W.F. Strong, and I want to welcome you to a special program today, a special Stories from Texas. As you know, I've been telling Texas stories for some time now, and I thought it would be interesting to hear some Texas stories from other Texans. So I asked some students at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley to share their stories with me. I asked 30 students to tell me their Texas story, and from those 30, I have selected five to share with you. So here we go. We're going to do this all in about 15 minutes. Each of these stories is two to three minutes in length. First up, we have Adriana Gutierrez, who's going to tell a story that I have also told, but I think hers is better. This is the story about the ghost children in San Antonio. This is Adriana Gutierrez with Stories from Texas. Today, we'll be talking about the San Antonio, Texas ghost tracks located at the intersection of Shane and Villaman Roads. The story varies, however, most of them agree on the tragedy occurring around the 1930s or 1940s. A school bus filled with children got stalled on the railroad tracks late at night. The nun that was driving it tried to restart the bus, but she couldn't. Sadly, a train with no lights was near and was unable to see the bus. The train crashed into the bus, killing all the children, but spared the nun. She survived, but suffered from survivor's guilt and later tried to take her own life by parking on the same tracks. As the train approached her, so did the sound of laughter and running feet of little children. It was then that her car slowly and mysteriously moved off the tracks and was pushed off to safety. She was saved by the ghost children. Ever since then, it is said that the cars that stop on these train tracks are pushed by what people believe to be the spirits of these kids. Many have driven to this intersection to see whether or not the legend is true. The drivers place their car in neutral gear at a 20 to 30 yards distance from the tracks. Others even turn off their engines. Witnesses say that the car starts moving at a low speed and little by little gains enough speed to rapidly cross the tracks. It is believed that the small handprints of the children can be seen if baby powder or dirt are spread over the rear bumper of the car. Measurements of the road have been done and a two degree declination has been found. This means that a car could naturally roll clear on its own. But there are those who swear that their cars or trucks are too heavy to start moving without a push. It is said that the streets nearby this intersection are named after the young lives lost that night long ago. Others say that they're named after the children of local developers who are still alive and well. Nonetheless, the legend lives on, and whether the tragedy was real or not remains unknown. No official record of the tragic story exists. But for those who doubt, all you need is a little time, a car, and some baby powder to test the theory for yourself. I'm Adriana Gutierrez for Stories from Texas. Next, we have Karina Tapia, who loves bluebell ice cream, and she's going to tell you why. Hi, I'm Karina Tapia for Stories from Texas. If you're not from Texas, you'll probably drive down to the Baskin Robbins to get an ice cream cone when your sweet tooth is aching for a cool treat. But if you are from the South, who needs Baskin Robbins when you can walk to the nearest gas station or grocery store and pick up half a gallon of your favorite Bluebell ice cream? Yes, half a gallon for yourself because once you've tasted Bluebell's homemade vanilla, you aren't going to want to share your delicious piece of heaven. The company began in 1907, then called the Brenham Creamery Company. 
It started as a small creamery when the founders converted a nearby abandoned cotton gin to make a dairy for dairy farmers. There they made butter from their excess supplies of cream, thus ice cream production began in 1911. The firm took its name from a native Texas wildflower called Bluebell in 1930. Since then, the company has strived to ensure that home-like feeling. Though it controls all shipping and handling of its products, Bluebell, unlike Baskin-Robbins and other ice cream chains, does not maintain its own sales outlets. Bluebell sells its products through retail grocery chains. Since it is located in the heart of dairy country, the company has never needed to own its sources of raw materials, but continues to depend on farmers in the surrounding area. Last year, Bluebell received approximately 4,000 phone calls and letters, with a typical day bringing in between 10 and 40 letters. Even though he has many responsibilities, Paul Cruz, CEO of the company, responds to each letter personally, representing the Cruz's family ideals of that small town feel. Many write in to tell Bluebell how much its ice cream means to them such as a letter received in June 2004 from Jim Boyd, AFCAP Ranger in the U.S. Air Force. He found a postcard buried in the sand at Camp Tashi, Iraq, featuring a pint container of Blue Bell homemade vanilla ice cream filled with blue bonnets and the Lone Star flag in the background, with a note that read, Wish we could send you a case of cool ice cream. Don't think it will make the trip. Take care, and we look forward to your return. Boyd, who kept the card near his bunk, wrote to Bluebell. It is hard to put into words the way I felt when I found this postcard from my great home state of Texas. It was lying on the ground in an area totally destroyed by our bombs. Each time I looked at the card, I was reminded of home and Texas and what it would be like to go to the food store in Austin and buy some Bluebell ice cream. I had mixed feelings of being happy and homesick at the same time, but mostly happy. Texans have been waiting months for their favorite ice cream to hit the shelves again, after the company's Listeria-related recall in April. Slowly, Bluebell ice cream is being distributed across the South. We suffered through a long summer of Bluebell drought. Most grocery stores, such as an HEB in Austin, began by limiting the amount of Bluebell purchases people can make to only two pints per customer. The Valley has still not seen a single Bluebell product and are anxiously waiting for the Bluebell delivery man. Instead of waiting, some folks have traveled five hours to San Antonio just to stock up on this delectable, now iconic, ice cream. The Lone Star State stands behind Bluebell 100% in this time of crisis and will continue to do so because there is no place like home, and Bluebell is home. I'm Karina Tapia with Stories from Texas. Stephen Masso has some interesting observations about South Texas culture, really. A lot of this is kind of subtle and tongue-in-cheek, so listen carefully. I'm Stephen Masso with Stories from Texas. It's so hot when I touch you. I'm going to have to put this car in park right now. going to have to take this belt off, too. Yep, that's me talking to my steering wheel and seatbelt in the 100-degree summer days of South Texas. You see, it gets hot here in Texas. And when I say hot, I don't mean let's go to the beach hot, because it surpasses that on so many levels. I mean, it's let's lock ourselves in a room and eat sunblock together hot. I've looked out my window and cried during the summer. So you cannot deny global warming is a thing when a grown man is refusing to go outside because of the heat. On another note, I was thinking back about my first time. 
My friends had all done it plenty of times, but I just had no interest. To them, I guess they're just numbers, but I wanted mine to have a special meaning to it. And I'm talking about stealing those little table tents at Whataburger. I don't know what it is about Texans, but those have to be the most stolen item in our state. I look at them like they're trophies. Some people keep them as decorations. People have gotten really creative with them. Props to them. Or in the morning, you know, a little wake and bake. You look over at the lady, she's rolling one nice and tight. You see, I live down by the border, so trust me, we have the best stuff. And I mean it. I don't know if they bring it over from Mexico, but they are the best tacos I've ever had. But really, the Mexican food here is to die for, and that's something you won't realize until you leave the state. Another thing we Texans love is football, and that includes high school football. We love high school football so much, I'm surprised it isn't included in fantasy football yet. But don't get any ideas, DraftKings. But you know there's a high school football stadium in Allen, Texas that can hold 18,000 people? Yeah, 18,000. I thought that was a typo, too. I really suggest you look up a picture of this thing because it can host a Super Bowl if need be. This stadium can fit the entire Jacksonville Jaguars fan base in here. I think you instantly get a college scholarship the second you step foot in this thing. That's how legit it is. And if we're talking about things that are unnecessarily big, then we have to talk about Bucky's, aka your local gas station on steroids, aka home of the best restrooms on earth. I don't know who gave them the idea to make this place so big, but thank you. You see, it's a long drive getting across Texas, and running into one of these is like coming across an oasis in a desert. I mean, you know it's a good gas station where people will buy a shirt of it. I'm Stephen Massa with Stories from Texas. Alexandra Seymour has found a story that was new to me, the backstory of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You will enjoy this. So, how many of you are familiar with the name Ed Jean? Doesn't ring a bell? Well, how about Leatherface? You know, that infamous Texas horror story about a family who would abduct, torture, kill, and eat stranded motorists? The legend that became a horror cult movie classic known as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. How many of us have driven down that haunted road northwest of Austin and been too scared to stop at a beat-down gas station or convenience store? Or been scared that the sheriff who stopped you for speeding down that very same road would turn out to be like the one from the movie? Well, you can ease off the gas pedal there now. The only thing Texas about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the movie was filmed in Texas. Yes, you heard right. The movie was loosely based on the crimes and murders committed by Ed Jean in the state of Wisconsin. Ready for another spoiler alert? There never really was a chainsaw used in the murders. I know, disappointing, right? The director simply chose Texas and the chainsaw as the perfect horror movie location and murder weapon because it would make a marketable title. I guess Wisconsin just couldn't make the cut. Sorry, couldn't resist. The success of the movie franchise has created a wave of horror tourism for years now. Gawkers come to Texas just to catch a glimpse of the notorious houses. Brave ones shoot a selfie or two. The 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie house is located in Granger, Texas, which is an hour away from Austin. There, in the same empty field, is the creepy and menacing-looking farmhouse from the slasher film. In the driveway, you can see signs asking to keep out or go to jail, or worse, rest in peace. Although there have been no real murders in the house, we can take note that the owners of the house aren't scared to change that. So if you stop by, make sure to snap your picture from a good running distance. The original 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie was filmed in Kingsland, Texas, a few miles north of Austin, Texas. 
The house still stands today, and you can even sit down and enjoy a nice meal while you're there. The house has been turned into the Grand Central Cafe, where you can get a juicy New York strip for just $21. Although, you might want to stick to the vegetarian menu, right, y'all? To be on the safe side. Only kidding. Next time you're up around Austin, you might take a leisurely Sunday afternoon drive out to the movie house near Granger. Nothing to worry about. The original crime happened far away in Wisconsin. Or is that just what they want us to believe? I'm Alexandra Seymour with Stories from Texas. Finally, Albert Monroy has put together a beautiful and creative little piece about the Six Flags over Texas. And the thing that makes it particularly beautiful and creative is that he has included the music of each of these nations along with his recounting of the history of the Six Flags over Texas. Now, when I think of Texas, I think of Six Flags. Not the amusement park, but the actual Six Flags that have been flown over Texas during the course of its history. Let's go through each of them. The first flag belongs to the Spanish who discovered Texas in the year 1519. The first mission in Texas was established in 1690 with the help of Alonso de Leon, but when the natives resisted their presence, they abandoned the territory for the next 20 years. It wasn't until 1718 that a settlement named San Antonio was established. Now, before San Antonio, there was a French fort by the name of Fort St. Louis, discovered in 1689. And that is our second flag over Texas, the French. The fort was abandoned and left for Spain, but in 1800, Spain spoke with France and ceded Louisiana to the French with the Third Treaty of San Ildefonso. Now, when I say Louisiana, I don't just mean the state. Louisiana, at the time, also called New Spain, spanned from the mouth of the Mississippi to Canada in the north. The territory included parts of northeast Texas that were later sold to the United States in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase. But let's hold off on that for now. Our third flag is Mexico. They declared independence from Spain in 1821 and ruled over Texas with the signing of the Treaty of Cordoba. It was under General Antonio de Padua, Maria Severino López de Santa Ana y Pérez de Lebrón, better known as Santa Ana, that the Battle of the Alamo was fought in San Antonio, the very same settlement that the Spaniards established in 1718. Over 182 Texans died, including Davy Crockett, James Bowie, and William B. Travis. The battle inspired many Texans to join the army, eventually winning their independence at the Battle of San Jacinto in 1836 where Texans remembered the Alamo and raised the fourth flag over Texas, our very own Lone Star flag. Now let's get back to the United States. We purchased some land in Texas with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, but much later on in 1845, Texas raised the fifth flag and joined the United States of America, which Mexico threatened with war. In the ensuing Mexican-American War, Mexico lost 529,000 square miles of land to the United States with the Mexican Cession. But after the war was over, there were bigger problems brewing in the U.S. It was in 1861 that we rejected the flag of the Union and adopted our sixth flag, the flag of the Confederate States of America. And when the Civil War was won by the Union in 1865, the flag of the U.S. flew once more over the state of Texas. And to this day, the flags of Spain, France, Mexico, the Republic, the Confederacy, and the United States all fly over the state capitol in Austin, Texas, with their individual seals on the capitol building itself. And that's the Texas truth. I've been Albert Monroy. 
Thanks for listening. Well, that's it. That's the stories from Texas from the students of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. Hope you enjoyed hearing them. As always, this has been Stories from Texas. Some of them are true. <laughs>